Good evening, everyone. Um, so intimacy. I was um, a little intimidated by intimacy, talking about intimacy to 90 or so people, most of whom I didn't know in this huge space that um, is, uh, you know, quite beautiful and and uh, and yet, so as I began to feel into that experience of how do I enter, how do I enter, um, I began to realize that even though I don't know many of you, and many of you may not know each other, um, we all do know each other on some level. That all of us have um, come together with many of the same intentions, regardless of the backgrounds or the or the uh, histories or the jobs or the even the um, the frenetic, frenetic life that we live may be very different, and yet we converge onto this beautiful land and place to really cultivate a more open heart. To, and some of this is articulated in your, um, the sheets that you, that you wrote. Um, to cultivate your mindfulness practice, to be still in a world that is swirling with activity. And, you know, what more do we need to know about each other to be together? Uh, It's it's actually a beautiful intimacy of spiritual friendship, even though we may not know the details of our life. And that's the intimacy of the Dharma, that we feel that connection even though there may be differences in the room, many differences, um, even though, um, you know, we may have crossed a lot of geography in order to get here. That there's this intimacy of common intention to create more peace in our lives, in in a world that so desperately needs it. and that feels so, uh, that feels like a refuge that Gina was talking about in the first evening. That we come together to explore this mindfulness vipassana practice, which vipassana, for those of you who are, are new, translated means to see clearly. Seeing clearly the things that we usually don't see for so many reasons, whether it's about distraction or whether that they're hidden or that we just overlook them because we're so involved with the busyness of our lives that, that we begin to see clearly as, as it settles, as, as we relax into the experience that's offered here, as things begin to fall away. Not that you know, uh, we can stop immediately when we come into retreat. But that as we just gently allow them to fall away, 
we begin to see more clearly how the mind functions, how the heart responds. Because when we're, when we're caught in the busyness, in the activity, and in, in the doing that creates the identity, I am what I do, or I am, you know, um, uh, what my activities are in the world, we take so much of this amazing life for granted. And this is, and this is you know, as we turn towards the very simple, basic aspect of life, like Gina was offering the in, invitations into the breath, that we take the breath so much for granted, usually, how often do we think about the breath in our everyday life, un, unless we have a respiratory condition or an illness that comes into our experience, then we know how precious the energy of breath is and how directly connected it is to the energy of our life. We take our ability to move through the world, to, to walk for granted until there's an obstacle to that. And so the walking meditation allows us to notice the preciousness of this relatively mundane activity that we don't give a second thought to. Seeing clearly is, is revealing that which is has been an invisible, allowing the full range of our life to be revealed. The Buddha said that living one full day of mindfulness is better than living a hundred years without it. That's a really strong statement. Living moment to moment for 24 hours is so much more precious than living a century without having that practice. And we tend, because of that unconsciousness, we tend not to value how precious, how rare this life is. And we do it um, so autonomically and so quickly because what we actually do is instead of meeting the moment for what it is, just touching it with our awareness, we usually push it away because we don't like it. Or if we do like it, we just want more of it. And this constant back and forth, this constant push and pull, we're actually manipulating the life that's unfolding. We're actually not living the life that is unfolding. We're living some thought of how our life should be. It shouldn't have this stuff that I don't like and it should have more of this stuff that I do like. And all of a sudden our thought becomes reality. And, and I don't mean that, you know, in, in some spiritual traditions, if you, if you sit and meditate on an object, supposedly it comes into your life. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the content of your thought becoming your reality. I'm talking about your thinking that actually becomes your reality, as opposed to the direct experience, which is what we're 
guiding, what we're inviting you into over and over again. I was saying in group that the invitations don't change. We try to make it sound interesting over and over again, you know, with different teachers, different stories. Where it is where it is unique is how this invitation to come back into the present moment lands in your life. Because it is your life that is unique and beautiful and brilliant. So noticing the details of our experience, the details of the breath, the details of the movement or the walking is an intimacy that that mindfulness allows us to get close to these things that we normally overlook in our, in our unconditioned um, state. So noticing the entire length of the inhale, you know how it tapers. Noticing the space in between the ending of the inhale and the beginning of the exhale. How is that for you? I can't describe it. I can only describe how it is for me. But with your mindfulness and awareness, you can describe that to yourself and be intimately aware of this energy that actually creates your life. This meeting the moment with this very kind acceptance, this gentleness, I often think that the translation of the Pali word sati, which is mindfulness, is a little bit misleading. Um, because in, in Eastern psychology, there is this word citta, uh, C-I-T-T-A, which is sometimes translated as mind, trans- sometimes it's translated as heart. But actually in Eastern psychology, the mind-heart is one. And so when we talk about citta, it's mind-heart. Um, before my, I remember often before my father passed, when he, when he said, I think, and he was a college um, professor, when he said, I think, his hand went here. So, you know, in Western psychology, we come from that Cartesian space of, I think, therefore I am. And that has driven so much of our, of our uh, view of who we are. And that's not to say that, that there's any right or wrong or better or worse. Really, it's just complementary frameworks to use skillfully. So that um, I think about sati as mind-heartfulness, that there's a connection between not just the thinking process, but the, the feeling process as well. Because as we pay attention, and that phrase has been used over and over again here, as we pay attention, not manipulating the moment for what it is, that is an experience of love. When all of us have grown up, we've known the experience of being a children, and some of us have been parents to children. I have two um, grandchildren myself. And I know, and we know, that when we don't pay attention to that child, 
regardless of what we say to them, oh, I love you or I care about you, they don't feel it unless your attention is with them. And this is what our retreat experience is about. It's turning this attention towards our own experience. This is a phenomenal experience of love and care when we completely allow ourselves to be who we are, not needing any aspect, not leaving any of ourselves outside the door, and, and just allowing, relaxing into, who are we? There is this uh, little story about Niles Pickert, who lives in a, a section of very traditional South Germany, in a small village, where his son's predilection for dresses is the talk of the town. I didn't want to talk my son into not wearing dresses and skirts, Pickert tells. He didn't make friends doing this in Berlin already, and after contemplation I had only one option left to broaden my shoulders for my little buddy and dress in a skirt myself. At first, Pickert's son was reluctant to wear a dress in public, fearing he would be laughed at, particularly by other kids in his preschool. But that all changed one day when he and his dad had skirt and dress day and made a resident of the town stare so hard she slammed into a streetlight face first. My son was roaring with laughter, says Pickert. And the next day he fished out a dress from the depth of his wardrobe, at first only for the weekend, but later also for nursery school. And what's the little guy doing by now? He's painting his fingernails. He thinks it looks pretty on my nails too. He's simply smiling when other boys, and it's nearly always boys, want to make fun of him, and, and he says to them, you don't dare to wear skirts and dresses because your dads don't dare to either. That's how broad his own shoulders have become by now, all thanks to a daddy in a skirt. <laughs> Giving ourselves that, I mean, what kind of, what kind of experience that child has with that kind of supportive attention in his life. Uh, Niels actually wrote something additional to that article in, in the Huffington Post. I am responsible for him as long as there's a breath in me, so I teach him the rules and what to do with them. But not every rule makes sense. Some rules tell us to behave with violence and cruelty to other human beings, even if we have a distinct feeling that our actions are doing them wrong. It's not okay for anybody to mess with my son about his outfit. Hence, I wear dresses and skirts so that any person who has a problem with that and feels the necessity to express his or her resentments can address me. Since I am adult, people should be able to call me out on my decisions. 
I confess I don't particularly like wearing skirts and dresses. I'm, a so- I'm like a soccer mom who doesn't love the sport, but does love her kids. I couldn't care more about my boy being a ha- I couldn't care more about my boy being a happy, self-assured, compassionate person. I couldn't care less about the choices he makes along the way to becoming that person, as long as they don't cause no harm to himself or others. What kind of experience that a child has being that supported in who he is in that early of an age. And this is the kind of attention that we are invited to place on our own experience. To the details of our lives, whether we actually like aspects of our life or don't whether we're proud of them or whether we're ashamed of them. It is the acceptance of who we are in this moment which can be a radical act of healing. We seek the worthiness and acceptance in so many places outside of ourselves, only to have that capacity right here in in this moment. The love that we need is right here in the intimacy of the present. The acceptance we need is right here in the acceptance of ourselves. This is a passage from Margaret Cho, for those of you who know the Korean-American comedian. If you are a woman, if you are a person of color, if you are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, if you are a person of size, if you are a person with different abilities, if you are a person of intelligence, if you are a person of integrity, then you are considered a minority in this world. And it's going to be really hard to find messages of self-love and support, especially in the women's and gay men's culture. It is all about how you have to look a certain way, otherwise you're worthless. You know, when you look in the mirror and you think, ugh, I'm so fat, I'm so old, I'm so ugly. Don't you know that is not your authentic self, but that is billions upon billions of dollars of advertising, magazines, movies, billboards, all geared to make you feel shitty about yourself so that you can take your hard-earned money to spend it on some turnaround cream that doesn't turn around shit. (laughs) When you don't have self-esteem, you will hesitate before you do anything in your life. You will hesitate to go for the job you really want to go for. You will hesitate to ask for a raise. You will hesitate to report violence. You will hesitate to defend yourself when you are discriminated against because of your race, your sexuality, your size, your abilities, your gender. You will hesitate to vote. You will hesitate to dream. For us to have self-esteem is truly an act of revolution. Self-esteem is not an attachment to self. It is not pride. 
and it is not hubris. It is the experience of worthiness in this life, the worthiness of all life, the esteem of your life and all of life that is, that is interrelated and we are not separate from. And this is why mind-heartfulness is so precious because even when the judgment comes up, oh, my mind has gone off again, or I just cannot do this walking practice. It is just so boring. The invitation is to be with that experience, to not need to judge the judgment. And in that moment of being kind to the practice itself, there is presence, there's compassionate presence. The power of mind-heartfulness is the ability to move the power of love beyond our simplistic conceptions of what love is. To include all of our experiences, not just the ones that we like not just the joys or the joyous relationships or the joyous parts of ourselves. Those of you who have been, we talked about intimate relationships in the very first evening, that that's generally you know, where we go when we think about intimacy. So let's go there. In your intimate relationships, can you love someone without their failures? Is it possible? I cannot love my husband without how much he irritates me when he leaves his candy wrappers all over the apartment. And we've been together for 13 years. And that's probably one of the minimal examples <laughs> that I'll use tonight. And there is a way in which I have come to appreciate that that's all of who he is, that I cannot love him really without loving his joys and sorrows, his highs and lows, his successes and failures. And this is what the practice is inviting into my own experience. When I turn the awareness, the compassionate presence to my own life. And so we begin with all of the discomfort, all of the sensations that arise as we come into our sitting or our walking. And discomfort will arise. Um, there is this practice that we call the itch. You know, physical sensations arise. What do we usually do when these irritations arise. Well, with an itch, we scratch. And why do we scratch? Because we want to get rid of it. What is it like to traverse that experience and go through the experience of the itch as opposed to get rid of it? And again, this is not about not scratching every mosquito bite that you get. 
This is about using the detailed practice, the template, to apply to how many scratches do we itch in our life? How many uncomfortable, inconvenient situations that we just repress, deny, or get rid of, or just do not see? Because we don't want to. And yet that is a part of who we are. This, this aspect of, of navigating discomfort is such a, um, uh, a tool that's also used in pain management that you begin to, as you begin compassionately to come towards the experience as opposed to get rid of, as you begin to tolerate the sensations and, and see the sensations moment to moment, you know, pain is one, just one umbrella word. I mean, there's so many sensations that arise under that umbrella, whether it's stinging or pulling or, or stabbing, and all of a sudden there's heat or coolness. And then as you parse the moments, as, as the awareness becomes more and more intimate with the experience, close to... There may be not so unpleasant feelings in that experience of pain. There may be some neutrality. There may be some softness. But we won't know until we invite the intimacy of mindfulness into that experience. As the, as the awareness comes closer to these moments, we begin to see the space in between the moments, the moments in between moments, the sensations in between the sensations. And that actually creates spaciousness, especially if it's a challenging situation to hold, that, that the awareness of let's say, a difficult emotion like anger. It's not just one experience. It's a multitude of changing um, uh, sensations. And one of the insights that I got about my own patterns of anger is that in anger, there are some really pleasant sensations. And there's a way in which, when I'm not conscious, I can feed those pleasant sensations because on an unconscious pattern, I want more of them. But when I'm aware, I can really determine with some discernment, is this state of mind really going to lead to freedom? There's this uh, Korean artist who um, uh, pra- uh, um, does his artwork in Japan, and he had a retrospective at the Guggenheim last year that that I went to, and his his description of his work was so um, it 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 um, resonated so much with 
with uh, my practice because he talks about the, the resonant space in between events. So he talks about um, the space in between the sound of the bell and how that also is the experience of bell. He, um, his artwork is huge and uh, it's minimalistic. There's three strokes maybe on a, on a huge white canvas. But what is really interesting, at least from my perspective, is he uses a Western paintbrush that is like a house painting brush. But, he, but the way he uses it is from a master Asian calligrapher. And you can tell, if you know anything about Asian calligraphy, that the pressure of the brush creates a certain, um, certain mark. And as the, the muscles in the arm lift, it creates the delicacy of the stroke. So there are these three strokes on this huge canvas. And the strokes themselves just spoke to, you know, the whole history of abstract expressionism in Western art. And if you looked at the stroke, it spoke to the whole 2000 year history of Asian calligraphy, married into this resonant space, this white, the silence of canvas. He calls it yohaku, resonant space. If a bell were struck, the sound reverberates into, this dis, into the distance. Similarly, a point filled with mental energy, meaning his stroke, is painted on a canvas. It sends vibration into the surrounding unpainted space. This is our life. This is the space in between our breaths, the moments in between our moments. He writes like a little haiku, Stand still a moment is the title. When I say I, does it include things around it? When I say I, doesn't it include unknown mountains and streams? As an artist, the template that I learned from him was that he goes into the intimacy of a particular event, the stroke, or the sound of the bell, or the sense of self. And as he expresses it, it goes, what he is expressing is the expansive, is the universal, is the unconditioned. When we go into a particular moment, when we are mindful of that moment that's arising, we explore that moment in the greatest detail. Yes, I can be with this. I can allow this moment into my heart, into my awareness. 
and you find that you can be with many, many, many moments. You find the relationship, the intimacy to all moments, the intimacy to all things, that poem that I read at the beginning of our retreat. This interconnection. Dr. King writes about this, this interconnection between all human beings regardless of where we come from. When we rise in the morning and we go to the bathroom, when we reach for a sponge which is provided by us to us by a Pacific Islander. We reach for soap that was created for us by a Frenchman. The towel is provided by a Turk. Then at the table we drink coffee which is provided to us by a South African or tea by a Chinese or cocoa by a West African. Before we leave for our jobs, we are beholden to nearly half the world. In a real sense, all life is interrelated, all men, are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly, affects all directly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you are ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. We go into the particular specific practice and we see the interconnection of all practice. How close these different practices are. Really the intimacy of all Dharma. So there's the sitting practice and the walking practice, the standing practice and the eating practice and And as Eugene was saying earlier today, these are just conventions. They're all connected with the practice of mindfulness. The object actually doesn't matter. The practice is simply itself without any form. The the, the object is just for us to exercise and cultivate the capacity for our mind-heart to be aware in the midst of our life, whatever arises. So, for example, as we see the details, as we cultivate the details of these practices like in walking practice. It's not just about the walk. It's about how we live in the world. So we walk a length, whether it's in the hall or outside. Notice the turn. Notice when you reach the length of the walk and you stop, And notice all of the sensations in how the body needs to pivot. What are the muscles? What what is the foot doing as it overlaps the other? Because we usually get lost in the transitions. 
We are so interested in the outcomes, in the destinations of our lives. We miss the transitions. It's not about just the walking. It's about how do we notice the turns in our life when our life begins to change. Because we often don't follow the process of when we're in the, in the midst of getting a new job or a new house or apartment or relationship. We just want it. We don't want to have to go through or traverse that territory. And it really helps. You know, when my father was um, passing, um, many of our family was gathered, and I remembered this comment, because he was fading, um, he had stopped uh, taking in any food or water, and usually the body um, uh, declines pretty quickly, within uh, 14 days, and I think he declined to about nine. But those nine days were really difficult. And one of my relatives said, I wish this would be over. And I really appreciated where they were at, and I wasn't there. Because I was learning every moment that that was happening. That this was a really important transition for me to be present for. And so we learn about transitions, even in the most mundane activity. Another aspect of, of walking practice that I love when I learned it in, in Thailand is, is the monastics and the, the lay practicing community um, do walking meditation on the land before they build any temple or sacred space. It's, um, uh, it's almost like developing a relationship with land before it's, um, it's developed for use. It's, it feels almost indigenous to me that there's a, there's a permission almost or a purification that happens. And in the West, we usually, you know, we have so many ideas of what land is. But, a, but some of the central ideas around land is that we own it, or we rent it, or we use it. Or, you know, there's, a, there's a, this aspect of property. When we can't actually own land. Tashunka Whitko, who in our um, sort of uh, American world um, is called Crazy Horse, said, um, one does not sell the earth upon which people walk. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the Sutta that describes the foundations of mindfulness, in the first foundation, when, he, when the Buddha describes walking meditation, one of the invitations is to do walking meditation through the experience of the four elements of the earth. 
through the element of fire, feeling the heat that's created in the, ener in the energy of the muscles contracting as, as you lift the leg. Feeling the air element as, it, as the movement of the foot or the leg moves through space. Feeling the, the solidity of the earth element as, as the foot touches the ground and feels the solidity of that sensation. And feeling the water element as the shifting of the weight, as the fluidity of balance that, that, that is occurring constantly as we walk. And as you feel your way into these elements, if, you, if I invite you to use this as a practice, but if you choose that, 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 that venue, that door into the practice, see if it recalibrates your relationship to land. Because we don't own it. We don't use it. We don't work it. We don't even exploit it. We do not walk on the earth because we are earth that walks. We are elements that have been put into motion of, of activity and consciousness. And we're going to be talking about the hindrances later. But doubt one of those strongest, subtle, and yet strong hindrances. One of the ways doubt can be dispelled is when we feel we are totally a part of this life, when we are a part of this earth, indispensable to its existence. When we are totally accepted by this earth as a part of and not separate from there is no doubt that I should be here. That kind of organicity of your life, of your being with the earth itself, with life itself, is way beyond this personal sense of self that we sometimes get caught in. just simply noticing the nature of things as they have come to me. This is the intimacy with life. Which we can feel in all of these practices. Uh, um, Eugene introduced the eating practice. It's one of my favorite practices. Because usually when we start a meal, we haven't had much food in our mouth. And so we may, as he was describing, feel the sensations of the body. And when that first bite comes, try it tomorrow morning. I don't care if it's oatmeal. <laughs> the sensations that cascade into your tongue are brilliant. That maple syrup, if you're really paying attention, is an amazing experience. And it changes over time, of course. And the second bite is slightly different. And then we have something that's the space in between your taste. We call it sometimes aftertaste. What is that? Can you be curious 
about these experiences that are arising. Michael Beckwith, who is um, uh, a spiritual leader in Los Angeles, uh, writes this that that I love talking about about um, the mindfulness of, of eating. I was a young boy, probably 10. All the students at the school had been asked to grow gardens and I can remember planting the seeds in the soil of my backyard, carrots, radishes. One afternoon I went out in the backyard and I pulled a radish out of the soil and I bit into it. It was so sweet. In that moment, I felt the whole universe was contained in this radish. It had begun as a seed, then merged with the soil and the air and water until it became the vegetable that I was now eating. I thought, this is what they're trying to teach me in church. They're trying to tell me this, this life, this presence, this great life that is in this radish is everywhere. This is the life force they call God. Going into the particular and seeing the universal. Whether it's the walking, the breath, the body, the eating, and of course it may seem mundane and repetitive and, and even boring. And there is awakening in that experience too. This is from Andy Warhol, you know, where Andy Warhol does that, you know, repetitive, you know, Jackie O or Campbell Soup Can, or uh, he goes into the repetition as, a, as an art form. I've been quoted a lot as saying, I like boring things, but that doesn't mean I'm bored by them. Because the more you look at the exact same thing, the more the meaning goes away and the emptier you feel. The meaning, the thought, we get out of the way and let the life be lived. We actually experience directly, not what, our, what we think our life should be, but what life is. And as, as the continuity that Eugene was talking about, as the continuity of practice builds over, over our days together, our continuity supports the concentration to come back to our, our present moment. Strengthening this capacity to be aware and when we are aware, the power of that is that we cannot change anything in our life that we're not aware of. With our awareness, we have that choice point. What actually leads to more suffering and what actually leads to freedom? Let's 
see. So, in the interest of time, I want to uh, end with this story. about how our practice is also not just about our personal experience. It's not just about the transformation of our own lives, but it's really about transformation of, of the world, of our collective experience. That, that our, the work that we do in this room ripples in so many directions. I um, uh, did some work in Tallahassee a few years ago, and I like to read up on the geographic area that that I go to. And uh, one of the books that I um, picked up was called Freedom in the Family by Patricia Stevens Dew. She was one of the um, early civil rights activists that, um, you know, when they were protesting the lunch counters at Woolworths and and trying to desegregate um, uh, public spaces. And um, she and um, um, her daughter, as well as a few others, were uh, put in jail one day. And she writes, Only days before we were to leave, the jailer, a tall, mature-looking man, whose name I do not know, unexpectedly showed up carrying a very young boy, perhaps as young as three or four. Since whites had been restricted from seeing us, it was a shock to see the jailer bring a white child that young. Once they were closer, we could tell from the resemblance this boy must be his son. The jailer stood in front of our cell with his son in his arm, and the boy leaned his tiny face through the the bars to gaze at us. I braced for the worst, imagining what he was about to say and sow the seeds of racism in the next generation. The jailer began to speak, pointing us out one by one. Now these ladies are sisters, Priscilla Stevens and Priscilla and Patricia Stevens. This other lady is Barbara Broxton. He said to his son, say hello to them. Hello, the boy said obediently. I know Daddy has told you that only bad people go to jail. Well, you may be too young to understand this, but these three ladies aren't in jail because they're crooks or because they're bad people. They're in jail because they're trying to change the laws that say that blacks and whites can't eat together. They want to be treated just like everyone else, and they believe in what they're doing so much they're willing to go to jail to make it right. So you try to remember that, okay? One day you'll look back and realize how important it was for them to do this. The boy nodded soberly. Perhaps he understood and perhaps he didn't. But that jailer couldn't have given a greater gift to those of us behind bars nor to his son. This 
compassionate presence is not just an intimacy that has the power to change the relationship between a father and a son. It has the power to change a relationship between human to human. As we practice these moments in between moments, opening to all of the moments of our life, as both Gina and Pam have said, it is both an internal and external practice. It is about our own experience and the collective. Sayada Upandita, who is one of the Burmese meditation masters, has written, practicing mindfulness means building peaceful little worlds within each of those who practice. Without peace in our little worlds, crying out for peace with raised fists and with clenched fists and raised arms is something to think about. We can change our lives because we think we should be different than who we are. Because we dislike our mistakes or we can't stand our flaws or even hate certain aspects of our personalities or bodies or backgrounds or histories. Or we can change our lives because we are so aware of how precious this life is. How incredulous the wonder and the beauty and the worthiness that we have. And that there is no other path other than to create less suffering for ourselves and others in the world. These are two really different experiences. Awareness provides that intimate choice point that only each of us can answer for ourselves as to what, what path leads to greater freedom. What path leads to greater freedom versus greater suffering. So may we continue to explore that intimacy together. Maybe we will sit for a moment and then um, we'll have a half hour for walking and then we'll come back for our um, last sitting of the evening. as you allow the words to fall away. Is it possible to invite the sensations of this moment into your awareness, becoming intimate with this moment, however it is, not needing it to be any different 
then it's arising. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.